The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we have conversations with wise people who will help you along on your own spiritual path. If you are a fan of the early iteration of this uh, podcast uh, that I co-hosted with Dennis Ramundi, uh, you can still find the archive of that show with some 300 interviews for free on uh, spiritmatterstalk.com. But here on their new platform, mindbodyspirit.fm, we continue the tradition of illuminating conversations. And today will be no exception. Our guest is Mark Matusik. Mark is an award-winning author, teacher, and speaker whose work focuses on transformative writing for personal, professional, and spiritual development, something we'll ask him about. He's the founder of the Seekers Forum, which you can find online. It's an online community for non-sectarian spiritual dialogue. He's a founding member of VMEN, an organization devoted to ending violence against women and girls. He offers workshops in self-inquiry, personal development that feature a method he calls writing to awaken. And as a writer himself, he uh, blogs for Psychology Today and has written for numerous other publications and the author of eight books, including the memoir, Sex, Death, Enlightenment, Writing to Awaken uh, and Others, and his new book, which is what caught my attention for today, is Letters from an American Stoic, How Emerson, that is Ralph Waldo Emerson, can change your life. And uh, he changed We may mine. want to go back just a bit. It's lessons. 
what did I say? Lessons. I'm sorry. Sorry, everybody. Lessons from an American Stoic. Somehow I wrote letters. There are many letters from Emerson in publication, but this is not that. Lessons from an American Stoic, how Emerson can change your life. Thanks, Mark, and welcome. Thank you, Phil. It's really good to be with you. Let's uh, begin, as I always like to begin, with a kind of spiritual origin story. Um, for listeners who are not familiar with you and your work or have not read your memoirs, um, how did you set foot on your own spiritual path? What was the beginning? What direction did it take? And then we'll come up to the present. Sure. I, I grew up in a house where there was a lot of trauma and fear, violence and pain. And so I feel like I was a seeker from a very young age, somebody looking for answers to existential questions of suffering uh, and belonging and connection, that kind of thing. And then it sort of went underground in me, those questions, for a couple of decades while I created a career and I tried to do the, you know, the uh, alpha American man trip and became an editor in New York. And I was climbing the corporate la publishing ladder at a magazine. When my life hit a wall, I was uh, losing a lot of friends to AIDS. And I was very worried about my own health and my own future uh, and quit my job. I went to India. I started to study meditation and yoga looking for answers to address the fear that I felt around mortality. Uh, and that really was my jumping off point. Uh, it was the time when it was both the most exciting time of my life and the most hair-raising time. And uh, I think those two things often go together. You know, we often have these wake-up calls that aren't pleasant, that really get us on the, on the path. And so for me, it really was a life and death question of what, what does this life mean? Who am I? And I didn't want to die as ignorant as I was. That was for me <laughs> adding insult to injury. I didn't, I, I used to feel like stumbling off a cliff, like a sleepwalker stumbling off a cliff, never knowing. And I just didn't want that to be the end. If I was going to check out, then I didn't want to do it as, you know, as clueless as I was at that time. That was the beginning. And, and I was struck uh, by re in reading the preface to uh, Lessons from an American Stoic that on that trip to India, you had a collection of uh, Emerson's work with you. And the reason that hit me was, um, I don't know if you know this, but uh, my book, American Veda, uh, I have a chapter on Emerson and Thoreau and Whitman and the others uh, and the influence of India on them. So, and we can talk about that. But um, I have also encountered in India, Indians, including monks, renunciates, who were influenced by Emerson. Yeah. Yes. And so, and there you were, traveling with Emerson's work in India. And I'm curious uh, about that link. And you mentioned it in your book, uh, between Emerson and India. And um, maybe you have some insight into that. Sure. A few years before I went to New York to become an editor, 
Uh, I was a graduate student at UCLA, and I just stumbled into a job as a research assistant for a very famous, unbeknownst to me, uh, Emerson scholar named Barbara Packer, who was writing a book about his essays. And she hired me as a research assistant, and I spent a year just immersing myself in the trivia of Emerson's life, the way you do as a research uh, assistant when you're you know, uncovering references and things like that. And so I fell in love with his work at that time. And so the portable Emerson went with me wherever I was after that, and including to India. And I did realize, I came to realize how deeply influenced he was by the Gita, for example. Yeah. They called yeah. him the Yankee Hindu. The Yankee was, Hindu with two Yankee O's. Hindu. Yes, two O's. That was his nickname <laughs> in Concord. Uh, and he was profoundly uh, influenced by the Gita, uh, by Indian teachings, by Buddhism as well. Yeah. Uh, in fact, he said early on, and this was a seventh generation minister speaking, that the Gita was as important a book as the Bible uh, to him. Uh, and of course, it informs transcendentalist thought uh, at the very root. Uh, and so the two have been entwined in my path uh, ever since then. Yeah, and Thoros, who had... Uh... Uh, read the Gita every day, and I think it was uh, one he borrowed from Emerson, as I recall. Yeah, um, his landlord. Yes, on on his in his famous uh, little hut in uh, on Walden Pond. Um, I want to. We'll of course come back to Emerson. That's our main interest. But I, I before we do it, and I'm going to uh, backtrack a little because I wanted to make sure to talk about this. It struck me when. Um, I was looking over your website that you have two books um, on the subject of ethics. One is called Ethical Wisdom, The Search for a Moral Life. The other is uh, Ethical Wisdom. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. What was the other one? Ethical Wisdom for, for Friends. friends. For yeah. Friends. Uh, this is of particular interest to me because um I'm on the board of something called the Association for Spiritual Integrity, which was uh, begun by friends of mine uh, in a response to ethical breaches uh, among spiritual teachers, people who should know better and behave better. Um, so I, I wanted to address that. And, and since you did in your, uh, uh, those books stood out to me, uh, what what was your intent in writing those books? Why the focus on ethics? I was interested in the psychobiology of ethics and morals as much as the social construct of ethics and morals and how we're wired as human beings. You know, the Buddhists talk about uh, original, uh, our Buddha nature and our original nature being essentially good. Uh, and I was I, interested in how we are wired for goodness or not. And, and how is it that evil arises out of the way we're put together as psycho-spiritual beings? So I did a lot of research into evolutionary psychology uh, and sociology, uh, as well as spiritual and philosophical traditions to see where they converged. How did this come out of us? This idea of needing ethics, having moral codes, having spiritual systems. You know, where did those grow out of our evolution as a species? That was the inception of that book for me. That was the seed. And it took me in a lot of different, a lot of different directions. But what did you idea, learn? 
Well, the upshot is that we are profoundly better than we are worse, that we, if we were not uh, in the majority, cooperative, helpful, altruistic, capable of empathy, we wouldn't have survived as a species. So that while, you know, competition exists, aggression exists, obviously, and evil exists. It's the minority uh, mm. view. It's the minority voice in terms of our, uh, our species. And that's the problem with uh, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, the journalistic credo that right. what gets attention, what gets attention is destruction and darkness and extremity and emergency, crisis. That's right. what gets our right. attention. But that's not from the macro what's going on in the majority. And I think we need, to, excuse me, I think that we need to get back to that awareness because we've fallen into such a doomsday kind of mentality yeah. these days. And that's partly also why I wanted to write about Emerson. And what did you learn about that uh, question you raised, which is, if we're wired for goodness, uh, why the bad stuff? And why especially, because this is a show called Spirit Matters, um, why does it appear among people who not only know better, but are supposed to be our guides to uh, good behavior, and in many instances, uh, operate from a place uh, in uh, that we assume is of goodness. Right. They're, they're, they're God's emissaries, they're enlightened beings, and so forth. How did, what did you learn about that? That ignorance is the basis <laughs> of evil doing. Ignorance is the basis of most violence. It's the basis of you know, most uh, abuse. Uh, and nowhere more so than among people who call themselves God's emissaries. That language in itself is so dangerous. Yeah, because the yeah. minute we put people on a pedestal and we say that they're half God or that they're enlightened, uh, it it can become uh, you know it can become an, a, a a carte blanche for a lot of terrible behavior. The fact is, we are multi-dimensional beings. You can be an excellent meditator. You can have profound satori, all kinds of awakenings, and abuse your wife, or have no you know care for you know for lying or you know cheating and and all kinds of abuses. Those are those coexist in this in in all of us and so what i wanted to get to particularly with ethical wisdom was uh, the fact that as, you know as as horace said nothing human is foreign to me mm. you know i contain within me the seeds of all possible crimes that all of us have the whole range of potential for every behavior uh, that humans are capable of and the minute we forget that we're in big trouble and we do tend to forget it we we like forgetting it i i think yeah, yeah. And, well, power, and power corrupts, you know, yeah. that's not an original idea. And, and spiritual power can corrupt absolutely. Yes. Because people are, uh, people are more vulnerable in their spirituality uh, mm. almost than any other place in their lives, except possibly with their doctors. You know, with a doctor, you have to trust mm. what they tell you. Next to a doctor, uh, your spiritual guide is there's a potential for abuse that is nowhere else in your life because they're talking about an experience you have not yet had or you think you haven't yet had. They're talking in language that may be very foreign to you. We have to trust them. 
Yeah. So we put our faith in them. And, you know, a lot of the time it's, uh, you know, it's, it's for the good. And there are sometimes when, when we, we, we become prey. Which brings us to Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, who's perhaps most famous uh, for the uh, term self-reliance. And um, in uh, your title itself, Lessons from an American Stoic, you, uh, well, let me just focus on that. Why Stoic? Uh, we think of Stoic as uh, a descriptive of somebody who maybe in, uh, endures pain, <clears throat> suffering without uh, a, a showing it, without a display of it, who doesn't complain. Uh, uh, but I suspect you mean more than that. Yeah, I do. That's the colloquial, that's, that's, that's the connotation of Stoic as somebody who's a bit repressed, doesn't show emotion. Uh, is a little unreachable and distant. That's not what Stoicism is, as practiced by the Romans and the Greeks, and then later people like Montaigne and, and, and Emerson. Stoicism is a beautiful philosophy for how to cope with destructive emotions. And the Stoics did believe in a divine. They believed that there was a, a larger mind that we all partake of. But they focused on how to work with our own negative thoughts uh, and how not to turn pain into suffering, mm. which is something we hear a lot about in you know, spiritual circles. Uh, and Stoicism is a very tough practice. Uh, it, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't suffer fools. It really says you are responsible for your perspective. You're responsible for how you look at the world and yourself and that nobody can hurt you except with your permission. Now, of course, we're not I'm not talking about torture, physical torture. We're talking about the other 99% of the time when we are doing it you know, to ourselves or allowing other people to have power over us in ways that, uh, that you know, isn't necessary. The Stoics are very clear on uh, what we would call today cognitive behavioral therapy, which is understanding the nature mm -hmm. of your thought, how it affects behavior, and the fact that we have much more control over uh, over our thoughts, well, control over how we respond to our thoughts, then we give ourselves credit for. Uh, and so that's what uh, Emerson has in touch, has in common with the Stoics. Was he, <clears throat> was he, in, did he know about the the Stoics of Greece? Oh, absolutely. And, oh, okay. yeah, he wrote about the Stoics. Montaigne was his favorite writer, yeah. the, the great, the great you know, 16th century French nobleman who was, who was a Stoic. No, it, and the other thing that Emerson, two things, has in common with them is their profound belief in nature as our greatest teacher and that unity, healing, all things divine are found in nature. Yeah. And also mortality as an important teacher for keeping our uh, lives and our ethical you know, behavior in check. You know, the Stoics, uh, the Stoics talked about memento mori, remembering every day of your life that you're going to die, that this mm. is an impermanent situation and how that clarifies the mind and how that simplifies things and how that shapes the kinds of choices and decisions we make. Emerson was all about that. Uh, so I wanted to emphasize it because nobody else has, has ever written about him as an American Stoic in ah. particular. And that's why I chose that title. That's interesting. I didn't know that bit about the awareness of death. It's, 
reminds me of a lot of the Eastern practices where they they go to uh, a, a cremation grounds and meditate uh, among the skulls and uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. which is what he did. I don't know if you know the story about Emerson lost his young wife. Yeah, yeah. And then the following oh, year, he went to the cemetery and opened her cat, opened her coffin. Yeah, because he knew that unless he sort of shocked himself with the actual encounter with her her dead body, he wasn't going to be able to pull out of his grief. And so this became a law, an ongoing practice for him. And he was a very young man at the time. Yes. Then remarried and then lost a child. Yes. So he uh, comes at this from profound experience of suffering and, and, and grief. He lost his father before he was 10 years old. His family left his, fa his mother in poverty with five children, uh, six children, uh, only, I think, two of whom survived to adulthood. He was surrounded by suffering and loss from a very young age. In fact, his bedroom looked out onto the cemetery in, uh, in his neighborhood. <laughs> so he grew up sort of contemplating death and feeling also he had TB from a young age. So he expected to die. That was mm -hmm. a, a haunted him throughout his life. And yet he lived a good long life and outlived uh, Thoreau and uh, other of his uh, crowd. Um, in the press release, let's, let's, uh, it says that uh, Emerson's vision is precisely the medicine we need today. Why? What, what do we, what can we gain from this? And why in this moment of our history uh, do you think it's so important to revisit Emerson? It's extremely important because we've fallen into this rabbit hole of secular materialism and forgetting that spirituality is the center of a sane and, and thriving life. Uh, Emerson warned about this. He said that if we don't, if we lose touch with our spiritual roots, that we are bound for destruction and degradation. Uh, and self-reliance was a spiritual path. And that's the thing, another thing nobody talks about. It was a profound spiritual path. It wasn't a path of rugged individualism or John right. Wayne machismo, which is what it's been sort of right. perverted into being. It wasn't. So he said self-reliance is reliance on God. You can't be any clearer than that. He also said that there's nothing so weak as an egotist. So we need to remember now our spiritual heritage, not only as Americans, but as a species, that we've lost touch with the, uh, the bigger picture. And this isn't news. Everyone knows it. But he, we have this prophet in our midst. And mm -hmm. I wanted to remind people that we have this extraordinary body of wisdom from someone who was the father of American transcendentalism, who's profoundly connected to the East and to Indian philosophy. And we need to access that now. We need to really take advantage of that now. Well, I couldn't agree more. Um, let's dive in a little bit to uh, Emerson's spiritual vision. Um, I always <laughs> feel like July 15th should be a national holiday because <laughs> It's the anniversary of his famous Harvard Divinity School address in 1838, which uh, I think of as our uh, Declaration of Spiritual Independence. And you begin, I noticed, your final chapter with a reference to that famous speech. 
Tell us about it. Tell us what you think is the importance of that moment. Well, it was a profound moment. He came into the Harvard Divinity School to address these uh, these boys. I, I it was 10, 12 boys, you know, under the age of you know, 18. I know. I know. I was all I remember thinking, oh, this great moment in history. <laughs> no. And I imagined a big packed auditorium and there were like a dozen people. There. Oh, just a, a few a few boys. But <laughs> what he said to them was radical and and heretical. He said, You're wasting your time here. You don't need to read books. You don't need any intermediaries to stand between you and the divine. Go into the woods, listen to the guidance within you, and basically you know, leave this institution as fast as you can. And he was <laughs> he, he was banished. He was banished from Harvard for 30 years after that. They wouldn't have let him back then on they, campus. But then, then he had become so famous in the interim, they gave him an honorary doctorate. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. But the but the pith of his of his teachings around nonconformity, originality, trusting the still small voice within yourself, you know, uh, intuition over tuition, all of these ideas that are so fundamental to transcendentalism and self reliance were in that talk. Yes, and as I recall, he he also uh, made a point of saying. Uh, don't uh, go out. Don't just go out and preach about God. Give people the direct experience, the yes. unmediated experience of the divine. He also upbraided the church a lot for having become about Jesus instead of uh, conveying you know, the message of Jesus. Oh, he was caustic when it yeah. came to that, and and some of the writing about how the idolatry of Jesus has taken away from the sanctity of Christianity and how this was, had just crippled the Christianity of his time. And he was a, he was a real, he was a spiritual revolutionary. Absolutely. I mean, this was a seventh, seventh generation minister who gave up the pulpit because he could no longer, you know, administer the holy, the sacraments. And, and became, became a speaker on the Orpheum circuit for the rest of, on the Lyceum circuit for the rest of his life. And extremely famous and popular, which kind of indicates that um, his kind of spirituality was kind of baked into the uh, American psyche, because, it, you know, a lot of would-be reformers, uh, we don't even remember, but Emerson lives and, and it was, was well-received in his time. It's not like, you know, some yes. obscure guy who we, we rediscovered later. No, very well received by some and by others, completely rejected. You know, Herman Melville and Nathaniel Hawthorne started the Anti-Transcendentalist Club. Did they? Yes, because they I thought... I live down the street from them now in uh, Western they, Massachusetts. They thought, that, they thought that Emerson's head was in the clouds, that evil was the bottom line when it came to human nature. They were Old Testament kind of thinkers, and they thought he was... Just la di da, the way you might talk about the way some people might look at positive psychology now or the new age or something. That's how they that's how they saw Emerson. But there was he was so popular because Christianity was in decay at that time in the same way it is now. People were leaving the church in droves, uh, looking for some new kind of spirituality. And that's what transcendentalism was all about, was giving people a direct uh, hit of. Right divine connection uh and instead of this sort of staid 
you know, rituals of, of, of even the Unitarian Church. You know, it, it was it yeah. was quite stodgy uh, and it rejected any kind of direct mystical experience. Uh, and he wanted to he wanted to revive that. That's really what transcendentalism was all about. So he was uh, uh, he had a reformer's spirit as so many uh i mean so many of the, the 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 traditional religions began as reform movements themselves and so um i often think of him i think i called him this in something i wrote uh the father of spiritual but not religious the founding father of what we now call spiritual but not religious this independent spiritual independence so speak to that that notion of of uh of independent seeking um which of course is more and more uh the norm but has carries with it uh you know certain hazards <laughs> <laughs> it does it does and he <laughs> talked about those hazards uh, and he he said that you know we we go alone into the forest we go alone into the presence of the divine and what we do after that is up to us uh, and that's where self reliance comes in self reliance is a it's a spiritual practice for spiritual people who are not necessarily religious uh, that focuses on uh, cultivating the voice of wisdom within us uh, not being fooled by appearances you know, understanding that we each have a genius, what he called a genius, that 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 um, tutelary deity that we're all born with. That's a piece of the one mind, the oversoul uh, that guides us when we quiet down enough to listen to it. Uh, and, and that's what he was. That's what he was uh, recommending that people do. But he, as he says, Phil, this is a rigorous practice. It's much easier to go to church. <laughs> and, and and just go that way. It's, this is rigorous. It's rigorous to because it means self confrontation, and that's really at the center of what he was about and what transcendentalism is about is self confrontation. What we today call self inquiry. That unless we inquire into the nature of our being and our own experience personally, uh, directly, and look at ourselves in the mirror, uh, no kind of freedom or what you would call enlightenment is is possible that doesn't it can't possibly come from an outside source it needs to really be generated from our on our own steam look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do i even say other than hey <sighs> well that's why they're introducing an all-new bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And this notion which you alluded to before, that uh, self-reliance, as he put it, means reliance on God, which um, whether you like God language or not, means uh, relying on some bigger intelligence. <laughs> and um, so there's a kind of um, a paradox built in. Uh, you can take self-reliance, as many people do nowadays. I don't need gurus. I don't need teachers. I just listen to the voice within. And yet, we all need people who know stuff we don't. Yeah. 
like Emerson, and as Emerson himself did. Yes. Yes. So yes. how do we negotiate that? Uh, the middle, the middle path, the middle way that we need teachers, but we don't give our power away. We don't mm-hmm. give our authority away. We discern. We have the ability to step away and to go our own direction when the time when it's appropriate. It's not about idolatry. He was dead set against all forms of idolatry. Yeah. To him, and that includes idolatry of another of, of a of a master or a guru. And as you know, any bona fide guru or master doesn't want you to give your power away to them. The yeah. last thing they want is that they want you to perhaps emulate what's coming through them and recognize it within yourself, but no real guru, no legitimate master is is, is looking to take your power away or needs your obedience or exclusivity. Those are things of the ego. Uh, and when people encounter that with the teacher, the best thing to do is to uh, be very aware of it and not, not be taken in by it. And there's a certain amount of trust in one's teachers and one's uh, uh, wisdom sources, but trust uh, taken gone too far becomes, you know, vulnerability, gullibility, and it does yeah. just like in any relationship, in any yeah. love love relationship, you have to trust the other person uh, enough to open your heart to have to experience intimacy. But the minute you give them your power or uh, start to create an, a one-up, one-down dynamic with them, it's the beginning of the end. There, there's no balance or, or health in that. I think a disciple-guru relationship is just like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, though you're playing in a diff- on a different ball, you know, a different field, uh, it's the same principle. Yeah. In that last chapter, uh, you speak about quote, a rational transcendence. It sounds like an oxymoron, in a sense, because we think of transcendence as beyond rationality, beyond the mind, and so forth. So what do you mean by that? And I used it deliberately because it's a paradox. Mm-hmm. And all spiritual teaching at their foundation are paradoxical. Yes. There is the transcendence piece, and there has to be the grounded, discerning, rational human piece as well. There's the relative and the and, and, and the transcendent. So that's why I use the word rational there. But rational in Emerson's time had a bigger meaning than it does in ours. It wasn't just about analysis. Mm-hmm. It was about understanding reason as order, as mental order, a kind of clarity, a kind of wisdom and balance. It wasn't just... You know, it wasn't just logic. So right. rational in the sense that it that it that it calls on our rational ability to make choices and to discern and to change uh, and to reimagine, uh, while also being connected to the transcendent, connected to the 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 bigger picture, the larger power source. We need both. If there's no plug, then we can't generate from that. And reason, in the sense that Emerson meant it is the plug yeah very good uh very often people especially people drawn to uh, eastern teachings forget how how uh strongly the very eastern teachings uh advocate discernment and clear thinking and (laughs) so forth (laughs) um let's talk about nature 
nature is a big piece of um, Emerson's life, Thoreau's life, of course, famously. Uh, and when I talk about them, I often point out that uh, there were no yoga studios in Concord uh, at that time. There were no, you know, meditation centers as there were, you know, when I lived in that area, not even in Cambridge or Boston. They, were, they had books and nature. And to this, you know, now I'm, I live close to the woods in Western Massachusetts, not far from Emerson uh, and Concord. And I remember once again in my life, the importance of the woods and the, the transcendence and uh, expansion that comes from just being in nature's. Talk about nature and its role. I know it's an important part of, of the book as well. Well, three things around nature. The first thing is silence. You know, Emerson talks a lot about the importance of silence in terms of personal practice, self-inquiry, coming into direct experience with the divine and with other people. The second thing is solitude. You know, he emphasizes solitude as being an extremely important part of uh, coming into our, our ourselves. Uh, as as spiritual grown-ups and as whole human beings. Uh, and he also talks a lot about beauty, that mm. we are transported and transformed by beauty. We need beauty to live the way we need air and water and food and and, and so on. So uh, in order to, the nature to him represented those three things, nature, silence, and solitude, even though he spent a lot of time walking through the woods with Thoreau and with, with other people, they were alone together. You know, it was they were, there was a kind of solitude of two, you could say. Uh, in those in those walks, there was a communing with 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 the with the larger world, and that's what nature was for him. It was God visible on the earth, uh, and he of course emphasized that not only that we go to the woods not only to be in the woods but to meet ourselves, because mm. what nature does is reminds us of the nature within uh, and the wilderness within. He talks a lot about why the wild and wilderness and not not becoming over domesticated. And that's another thing that happen, has happened so much in, in consumer culture. We've become so addicted to efficiency and fastness. And he's all about simplicity and getting in and touching and remembering that will, that wild nature that we have, the unencumbered nature. That's also why he wrote so much about the, the young and youthfulness, youthfulness mm. being a very important part of self-reliance. Uh, and, and these are all about the, the, not forgetting the primitive in us. Mm. So for this very, for this very refined, you know, Yankee, you know, Yankee Boston Brahmin gentleman, uh, the primitive was extremely important. You know, outside he looked like one thing, but inside Emerson was was a wild man. <laughs> one of the most memorable phrases to me in all of uh, literature but certainly in uh, Emerson's writing, uh, had to do with the experience of being in nature, as I recall. What does it mean to be a transparent eyeball? <laughs> <laughs> when I, every, time I, every time I read that passage, he had, when he had that ex famous experience, when suddenly he was looking at the world as if through a transparent eyeball, I think of what happens during meditation. With eyes closed, when 
self when when the mind starts to settle down and there's a kind of a simplicity and a clarity uh that's what i think he was seeing through uh the the he was seeing through a sacramental eye through a meditative eye and that's what that eyeball is that we all have in us that need that when we talk about waking up that's what we're talking about waking up <laughs> is that eyeball opening that transparent eyeball and i think it's transparent in the sense that it's not personal it's the it's the transpersonal self that's that seeing it's not the just the personality and so that's why when I, when I hear transparent i hear transpersonal mm -hmm. so it's the one mind that we're tuning into the oversoul that he talked about that's bigger that's part of who we are but it's bigger than who we are as well one of your chapters is about adversity we alluded earlier to the adversity uh, that Emerson experienced in his life profound loss and a um, loss is and um, how did they serve Emerson's spiritual growth and what lessons can we draw from from that I think they're inseparable from his entire philosophy. You know, advert, he said, he who has never visited the house of pain has seen but half the world. We're mm. not completely connected to our own uh, impermanence, uh, the losses of our lives, the, uh, the suffering of the world, including our own. Uh, we, lose, uh, we lose gravitas. And we lose the ability to feel empathy for people who are who are suffering. Uh, and that also goes to the Stoic philosophy, which is all about pain. And it's all about how to work with pain, how to overcome pain, how to let pain simply be there. You know, people forget that Marcus Aurelius, when he wrote the meditations, uh, half, a third of the Roman Empire had died of the Antonine Plague. You know, mm -hmm. he was going through a huge plague. And so a lot of Stoic thought comes out of grieving and loss uh, and death and mortality. Uh, and so that Emerson is suffused in that. He was somebody who who, who struggled a lot with uh, depression in his life, uh, a lot of demons. Uh, and so he was he was intimately connected to that. And I think it's what drove his transcendental teaching was he was so you know, aware of pain uh, and grief, that he knew that there needed to be a way of moving moving beyond it. Uh, so there, it's inseparable, really. Uh, the adversity, the awareness of adversity is inseparable from everything he's saying about human potential, that, that we, need, we need, that's part of our growth. He's, in the same way that nature is a great teacher, he said that loss becomes a guide. You know, pain becomes a, a teacher when we start to listen to the, uh, the things that hurt us in our lives, and, and that when we don't do that, it's a it's a huge waste. Mm. Yeah. What do you tell people? Because I imagine people come to you, um, <clears throat> or people you work with, people you know, friends, um, who are going through profound loss, grief, maybe uh, illness. Um, how when they say gee that sounds good but how do you do that hmm. 
how do you do how you do it is the same way the buddha taught about your know, being aware of our own impermanence that as we reflect on our own impermanence uh, it opens our heart it actually brings gratitude for the day it makes us more present mm. that facing our ending sharpens our our, our pre- sharpens the present moment uh, and reminds us uh, of this the 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 condition that we're actually living in the paradox, the amazing, scary paradox of being a human being. Uh, and we can't have that without an awareness of, of impermanence. So what I say to people who, who come to me uh, at 60 and say, I've never thought about impermanence before. I've just thought I was immortal till they get a diagnosis or their, you know, their wife leaves them. You know, this is a great opportunity to step into the truth of how things actually operate in the world. So that you can finally stop living in denial of the shadow, denial of of, of loss, uh, and move toward uh, toward a state of sacred gratitude for this experience, which is both you know both both um, valuable and meaningless. You know, you're both <laughs> infinitesimally small and and really important to that. Both both things matter. And so it's moving toward non-dual, non-duality, a more non-dual awareness, paradoxical awareness of our lives. So it brings awe, it brings wonder, it brings fascination. Those, that's what astonishment, as Emerson called it. Let us be astonished. Let us raise our hands uh, and say cosmos, uh, beauty, you know, before uh, we're swallowed into the abyss, he said. So it's the abyss that makes the revelation or the recognition of the astonishment possible. And that, that's, that's what I say to people, is, is that the end actually sweetens uh, the experience of being alive and, and awareness of mortality. Is that why your chapter on adversity uh, is followed by a chapter on optimism? It is. It is. And that's another thing. People think optimism is this shallow, yeah. you know, Pollyanna <clears throat> way of looking at things. Not at all. Optimism completely accepts the harsh realities of life while understanding that everything is in a process of regeneration and everything is always changing. So the optimist doesn't say everything's going to turn out just great. It says the future is a mystery. Mm-hmm. Mystery is a source of optimism. You know, the potential for, for transformation is a source of optimism. It's not about being cheerful. It's about having this deeper sense connected to nature that things are always in an organic way growing out of the losses and the darkness and the difficulties uh, of, of our lives, that that's where the new growth comes from. That's what the optimist uh, gets excited about. That's great. Thank you. Um, let's segue for a moment. Uh, um, some of the work you do focuses on uh, what I assume are, are sort of uh, workshop settings uh, called writing to awaken. Um, as a writer, uh, I think I know what you mean because it certainly serves me in that way. Um, what do you mean by that? And um, tell us about the work you do in that regard. Sure. Writing to Awaken grew out of my many years as a memoir writer uh, myself and realizing that when I asked myself deep questions 
uh, answers emerged that I weren't wasn't aware were there. Uh, and I realized in the process also of being a memoir writer that telling the truth is a very elusive thing. You know, we talk about being truthful and honest, and most of us are most of the time. But the fact is we are dissembling, euphemizing, and lying uh, every day of our lives in different ways for different reasons. And that when you get that, you start to understand that you're creating your a narrative of your uh, reality through your biases, interpretations, as well as the things that you cover up. So I started to think more about that. And I realized that when you tell the truth, your story changes. Uh, and when your story changes, your life is transformed. And that became the nugget of writing to awaken. So the work I do focuses on asking uh, deep, penetrating, challenging questions of ourselves uh, in order to access the awareness that's already within us. So I work with memoir writers, but I also mostly work with seekers. And that's actually what I prefer is working with people who are uh, in life circumstances that are confusing, difficult, uh, often in crisis, some, you know, some kind of, you know, some kind of challenge and understanding how the stories they're telling themselves about that experience are not the experience themselves itself. And that the reality is different from the interpretation. And that when you start to write about these things, when you really start to challenge your your narratives about things, uh, you see how they fall apart. Uh, and that's the value of crisis is suddenly all your stories about things, things you thought you knew collapse. And while that hurts, it can be and it's hard. It's also a great moment for uh, for awakening and for self-realization. And you do workshops. <clears throat> Uh, I see on your website, you have a few coming up uh, that are three, four, five days long uh, in residence at places like uh, the Omega Institute uh, in, I think, uh, September. Listeners, you can find out about that at uh, markmatusic.com. When you are doing this in person, in a retreat setting, uh, people coming to you who are seekers, but also uh, feel they have a story to tell and want, do they, uh, do most people want to uh, publish a spiritual memoir or are they doing it for the spiritual growth involved or the uh, personal growth involved without thinking of uh, the fruits of their action, as it says in the Gita uh, or both. And, and, yeah, really both. Yeah, I'd say about 50-50. Half the folks who come to me want to publish or have published, uh, and they're either trying to find what the next work is, they want to get deeper into their their uh, their their own story and what stories and what's underneath them. And the other half are people who are trying to understand themselves and their lives. So it's really half and half. And and I work similarly with both. I'm less interested in technique and style and teaching craft these days than I am this deeper this deeper journey of self confrontation. Uh, that's what I do. I have a group called the Seekers Forum. That's what we do in the Seekers Forum. Is uh, you know through written self inquiry generally. Uh, how can we use writing and and, and self exploration as an adjunct as a tool? on the path of awakening the same way we use meditation and yoga and other, you know, other modalities. You know, when we ask questions 
we have it's like a superpower that we don't even know that we have you know a question is like a key and and suddenly people i have it all the time where people are saying in their 50s or 60s i've never asked myself that question before mm. you know or i've just been telling myself that for the last 50 years and i've never actually stopped to look at what i believe you know what i believe on this subject or that and that's why i get so much joy out of it because it really gets quite quick results because we don't it's not therapy you know and people are asking themselves questions and realizing that they know things and you're posing the questions you're offering yes. the questions for them yes yes and i assume over a four or five day period um uh, you've given a lot of thought to the sequence of the questions you raise and the Yes, like for example, last week I just gave a, a five-day workshop in Italy, and, and the topic was uh, was the return to wonder. So it was all about wonder. So one day we wrote about love, relationships to love, the holiness of the heart's affections, as Keats called it. Another day we wrote about beauty. Another day we wrote about fear and awe. Uh, so I guide people through a process that's theme-related, but honestly, Phil, I feel like it's te I'm teaching the same thing in you know, right. 50, di 50, di 50 different forms. Do you, um, when I've worked with other writers and I experience it myself, I find a lot of people um, think writing should be easy and that um, that old Zen saying of first thought, best thought, uh, what I'm saying is a lot of people forget that writing to be read requires hard work and revision and uh, not just the flow of creative inspiration from the soul to the page, but then the hard work of craft and refinement and all that. Do you find people resisting that or are shocked <laughs> to hear that all even Mark Matusik has to rewrite <laughs> endlessly oh my god there's a great uh, essay that john mcphee wrote in the new yorker years ago saying that everything needs at least four drafts mm. and it's been my experience i mean writing for publication is a completely different animal right. yeah. writing is rewriting uh there's a reason it's called revision because you're actually tuning fine tuning the vision to say nothing of the language i mean just getting this the the the, the set making beautiful sentences getting the syntax right that takes a really long time so i often will laugh when somebody comes to me and says i've been working on my memoir for six months and i'm not done yet <laughs> <laughs> it took me 10 years to write my first memoir and it takes a really long time it's a long distance run so what I say to folks is if there are long distance runners and there are short distance runners, if you want to write a blog, write a blog. You can whip it out in, in, in an hour. Enjoy. And that's great. And there's a certain kind of way you can communicate with people online through a blog. Fantastic. But nobody wants to read that in a book. You know, a book is a book is its own particular animal. And I'm old fashioned enough to think that a book should have gravitas to it. It should you should feel that it costs the writer something to write it that there was a there was a process there was some time and thought and then you hope that your book lasts yeah uh, in the way that a blog doesn't last but those are different animals yeah and uh, i get that i i have to remind people of that 
uh, 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 quite often. And and there's the other uh, hard lesson of killing your darlings. Um, <laughs> speaking of, you know, the reader doesn't need to write that. And what I found, I want to hear you say that, in, you know, at first that notion of uh, shaving out superfluous stuff some of which are your darlings because you 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 had this clever metaphor or image or whatever and it's really superfluous um it's painful and and in and that um is a great teaching because i re- I, I i learned at one point that this thing i don't want to give up because it it was so brilliant but doesn't but my editor's telling me is not necessary. <laughs> <laughs> I'm attached to it. It's a lesson in attachment to ego tripping and all the do you find that in your workshop? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, Henry James, kill your darlings. It's it's because those things that you loved from the beginning, they were the thing that really got you interested to begin with, or it's a sentence that really caught your you know, caught your ear, caught your imagination. But then when the when the book is written, it's not it's not necessary anymore. It served a purpose, but you don't need it anymore. And you know, the 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 red pen is your friend. Yeah. Really. It's it's and and seeing it's funny somehow you sometimes when you see the things that you're most attached to and they are just the most superfluous of all. They're, yeah. they're just they don't are they redundant, they just over explain something and you don't need them. And do you do as I do, which is tell people to get away from it for a while? Because sometimes when you come back to something, you say, oh, my God, that's really, that doesn't work at all. <laughs> yeah. And that's also why I say it's a long distance run, because you have to factor in, you know, you write a book. Let's say you do a first draft of a book in a year. You need to take a, a couple of months away from it for it to settle, for you to have some objectivity. And then you come back and you start doing your, your second draft, but you have to factor in that empty time, that still time for reflection uh, and for perspective. Right. Great. Um, so there you go, audience. Free writing advice. Um, Mark, let's get back in a few minutes we have to Emerson. Let's combine these two things. Emerson as a writer. Most people encounter Emerson, I find, in recent decades anyway, um, more in the context of a class on American literature than on philosophy or spirituality or anything like that. I remember my niece having a high school assignment where uh, one of Emerson's most famous essays was given, and she she asked me what the hell a transparent eyeball means. And <laughs> um, so they encounter it in literature. So tell us about Emerson as a writer. And, you know, he was trafficking in or, you know, immersed in 19th century American prose, which many of us find difficult to wade through now. And yet it it, it rewards the effort. Can mm-hmm. speak to that, if you would? Yeah, that can be tough. And it was for me when I read Emerson in high school, I couldn't make, you know, t- I had her tales of the the syntax and the, the majesty of the prose. It's, it's a whole different way of looking at the world with vocabulary that we don't use today. And that can be hard going for people. Uh, and so I just would encourage them to stick with it. As you said, it's worth the effort. 
Yeah. You know, the sentences are longer. Some people think it's flowery. Yes. You know, people find it just a little bit too grand and too elevated. But part of that speaks to I, the way that we've shrunk our view of the world and our view of language uh, and the way things can be articulated. You know, in the same way that people read Henry James sometimes and say, oh, it's overwritten. Yeah, yeah. You know, people can look at Emerson and say, oh, it's so grand. It's so grandiloquent because we live with such a shrunken, kind of a flattened, reduced view of of the world and how things can, should be described. So he was first and foremost a writer. Uh, and even though many of the great essays came from talks that he gave, they were talks that he had written beforehand. He wasn't getting up there and speaking extemporaneously. So most of what we know of Emerson came from his lectures that he gave over 50 years you know, on the Lyceum circuit. And they were popular lectures for for seekers, you know, people who didn't fall into kind of traditional and wanted something, an alternative to traditional educational venues. Uh, so he took a lot of risks uh, and he rewrote endlessly. Mm-hmm. And you see when you read all of the essays and the talks, the speeches, you see how he would repeat, he would recycle phrases from one thing to the next. It would Things, certain things would show up uh, in one essay and then have a kind of an echo of it in another. Uh, but he was a lover of words. He was also a poet. Yes. Uh, I don't love his poetry, but, it, you know, he was a poet and some of his um, some of his poems are considered, you know, American classics. He wrote a poem after his after his son died called Threnody, which was considered one of the great uh, elegies in the language. Um, but his, for, to me, the prose is what just elevates the the teaching to a whole other level. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of wise people, but not all of them can express it with the nuance that Emerson does. And the ear, the extraordinary use of metaphor, you know, the earth laughs in flowers. You know, you come across something like this and you say, yes, that's exactly what the earth does, but I've never thought of it that way before. Uh, and and that's he has one after another of it. That's why he's one of the most quoted people yeah. on the planet. And everywhere you yeah. turn, and particularly nowadays, lately, there's been a whole lot of Emerson in our midst. I come across it, you know, in the most unexpected places. But he had a way of saying things that was completely singular as a writer, and that's why he has endured. Thank you, Mark. Um, it's been a joy to speak with you, uh, listeners. Uh, you can go to markmatusic.com and learn more about Mark and his work and his upcoming workshops and all that. I won't give you dates because um, you may be listening to this after the dates, but I'm sure it's it's updated. And uh, take advantage of lessons from an American stoic how Emerson can change your life. He has already changed many, many lives and will uh, change many more in the future, thanks to people like Mark. Mark, any parting words for our listeners? Well, it's great to talk to you about about this, Phil. I feel like you're a kindred spirit. I see the American Veda and the Yogananda <laughs> on the bookshelf behind you. I know we're, we're plowing you know, in the same field, and it's just great to meet you. You too. Be well. And listeners, thanks for tuning in. Please uh, let your friends know about the podcast. Go to my website, philipgoldberg.com. 
sign up for my mailing list. Let me know uh, how you experience the podcast or if you have any suggestions of people I should interview or any uh, ways I could do it better. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw. And on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.